Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Guys, it was 1995. Some of you here are, are 90s music. I get it. Uh, in 1995, a singer-songwriter by the name of Joan Osborne, she actually penned a song asking a very pertinent question. In her song, she actually asks, what if God was one of us? That's was, that was the song, and it was, it was very popular. What, was, what if God was one of us? And of course, guys, I think that uh, a lot of people ask that question throughout the ages, right? A lot of people have asked that question. Well, what if God was really one of us, like like human. Now, labor with me for just a moment as we walk through what Mrs. Auburn, as, uh, what she writes, okay? Here's what she writes. She's, she's singing, and, and this, is, this, is the, this is the lyrics that she came up with. She said, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? These are great, these are great questions, man. It's like, listen, if you were standing before God in all his glory, if you had one, what would you ask him? And she goes on to write, if God was one of us, and then, of course, she says, maybe like a, a slob like the rest of us and a stranger on the bus just trying to make his way home. And what she's trying to do is she's trying to really just uh, uh, hone in on his humanity. And she writes, if God had a face, what would it look like? Would you want to see it? And she goes, if you meant that, that by seeing it, you'd have to believe in things like heaven and Jesus, saints and the prophets. What if God was one of us just trying to make his way home, she writes, back up to heaven alone? What if God was one of us? And I think that's a good question, right? As a matter of fact, even the wisest men, apart from Jesus, asked the very same question. You go, how so? Well, I draw your attention to 1 Kings chapter 8. Let me set the stage just a little bit, okay? In chapter 8, verses 17 through around 22, what happened was that, that, that Solomon has now finished and he's built the temple, okay? He remembers that in Exodus, if you recall, it was the tabernacle, okay? They would set the tabernacle. Last week, we learned about the tribes and how it formed the cross. The tabernacle was in the middle. Well, now Solomon is coming. He's built the temple and he's about to dedicate the temple, and so he's gathered Israel all around and he's about to dedicate the temple and then he begins to pray in his dedication. And that's kind of where we pick it up in verse 22. Solomon has, has the temple ready. He's going to dedicate it. Notice what he says in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands towards heaven. What a great prayer posture. Notice he says, Verse 23 of 1 Kings 8. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. You who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you, you with all of their hearts. And you have kept what you've promised your servant David, my father. And you, you have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Therefore, now he's praying, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you've promised your servant David, my father, saying, Lord, this is what you said. You shall not fail to have men sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their ways and walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Now, now, your attention, please, for just a moment. Have you ever had that aha moment in praying? You've gotten before the Lord and you've prayed and, it's just, and you're just talking to God and all of a sudden his glory and, and, and he begins to reveal himself to you. That's what's happening to Solomon right here. Why? Because he stops and he finishes praying and then, he's, and then he sees and he realizes something, right? And you go, what does he do? Well, notice verse 27. He says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built, right? He understood. He's like, are you serious? Wait a minute. I'm praying to God to dwell here. And then I go, but really, is, I mean, what if God is one of us? But will God indeed 
dwell on the earth. I think about what Matthew Poole wrote in his commentary about this. He said, Solomon reflecting upon God's performance of his promise concerning the building of the temple. Here's what he does. He's starting to reflect. He's in prayer. He says he breaks forth into ad- to admiration. And it's possible that it, he goes, is it possible that this great and high and lofty God should stoop so low as to take a dwelling here among us? He's trying to comprehend. What, I mean, I built this temple. This is supposed to be for you, God. But really, this great and glorious God, is he going to dwell here on earth? And of course, remember this, church, remember that God's glory dwelt where? It dwelt in the tabernacle. Exodus teaches us that, the tabernacle. And then, of course, now in 1 Kings, he's going to dwell in the temple. The problem is, is that something happened. You go, well, what happened? Well, Israel, much like us, became disobedient. You know, they were walking with God. They were following God. They were honoring God. And all of a sudden, a generation changed and they go, you know what? I think we can do things our way. I think we, I think we got this. You know, Lord, you, you go off and do your thing, and they became disobedient. Well, here's what happens. When you ask God to leave, he's a gentleman, and he will leave. And the glory departed. The glory was no longer in the tabernacle or the temple. God's like, listen. And, and really, church, listen. In this day and age, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and if you ask the Lord not to, if you ask him to depart, he'll depart. The Lord will not go anywhere he's not welcomed. He's not going to invade your space. That's the same thing that happened. The glory departed. But both Solomon and Joan Osborne were asking the same question, were they not? Would God indeed dwell on earth? I mean, is that, can that be true? And of course, in 1995, she says, what if God was one of us? Well, to answer their questions, all a wonderful, spectacular, marvelous thing happened. Well, not quite like the song where Jesus is on a bus. But 2,000 years ago, guys, the glory of the Lord came back to his people. It didn't come back to dwell in the temple. It came back as the person of Jesus Christ. That's where he came. You see, through disobedience, the glory departed. And now through obedience, God says, I'm going to send and I'm going I'm to send him the glory come back in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, before we move on, let me remind you what we talked about last week, okay? Last week, we broke down three things. The author, who wrote, the, who wrote this? Who wrote this book? And it's so important to know who the writer was. Well, there's no dispute that it was the apostle John, although John never writes that in his book. The only thing he writes is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that's just a great title. Some people, oh, he's arrogant. He's, I mean, Jesus loved all the disciples. Yes, that's true. But I think John knew his own heart. And he thought, man, how could God love me, a sinner? I'm a mess up. I'm a nobody. You know who I am? I'm a disciple whom Jesus loved. And he really got it. He really got it. And I think that's a great title for us when we really understand who we are. And so that's who wrote this gospel. Well, well, who who did he write to? Well, remember, Matthew's gospel was written to the Jewish people, okay, and it portrays Jesus as king. So Matthew is Jewish. Mark was written to the Romans, and he portrays Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke was written to Gentiles predominantly, and he portrays Jesus as the son of man. Well, John's gospel is different. Those are, called, those are called the synoptic gospels. John comes out and he's about 90% different. You go, well, who, who does he write to? Here's what John does. John begins to write to the church, okay? And in the church are both Jews and Gentiles. There are the Jewish people that believe in Christ, the Gentiles that are coming to know the Lord, and he's writing this letter to them like to us. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's presenting Jesus as the son of God. He's saying, now here's what I want to show you. Jesus being fully God, yet fully man. That's how I'm going to write this. Fully God and fully man. Well, what was the purpose? What was the agenda? We know who the author is. We know the audience. Who's the agenda? Well, we, we talked about this in, in the beginning. The purpose of this whole gospel is that you should believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that believing you should have life in his name. But let me stop you for just a moment. You go, why? 
Because I think if you got up early this morning and you saw the sunrise and you saw the clouds and it was a beautiful day, you believe. But the word he employs here is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? That's what he's hoping for. After going through every single verse, every single chapter, all the way through the gospel, of G, uh, the gospel of John, he says that here's the purpose, that you have put your faith and trust in who Jesus is for your eternity. And by believing, by putting your faith and trust in him, you're going to have life in his name. And isn't that what we desperately need today, church? We need life. So many people are simply existing, mundane, Monday, Tuesday, same thing, over and over and over. And God says, no, I came to give you life, and life more abundantly. There's so much more than what you're allowing in your life. And so that's the agenda. Now I'm calling this message, guys, what if, what if God was one of us? You see, today we discover that that, in fact, really happened in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, for the sake of our study, as we make our way through, here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to picture that we're entering a courtroom, okay? Doors open, big courtroom, uh, trial is being heard. You can hear, what's the trial going on? Here's the trial, okay? The, the trial docket Will God indeed dwell on earth, right? So we're in this courtroom. We walk in. The bailiff says, shh. On one side of the courtroom, we see, well, we see the persecutors, okay? The prosecutors. That's who they are. And you go, well, who are the prosecutors? Well, on this side of the room, you have the Gnostics, okay? These were false teachers, guys, false teachers in the early church that taught Jesus wasn't a man, you had the docetism, and they said, well, see, Jesus wasn't really actually a man. They're sitting there with their arms crossed going, he wasn't, he was a spirit. He sort of floated everywhere he went. He wasn't really a man, which would render the crucifixion invalid. You guys tracking with me? Why? Because how, how can you crucify a spirit? The spirit would feel no pain. There'd be no blood. There'd be no sacrifice. But that's what the Gnostics were teaching. And then you had on the same side the Serinthianisms, and they were going, no, 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 you understand he was a man, but that's all he was. He was just a man like you and I. And it wasn't until later on on the cross that the divinity went upon him, and that's how it was. And, but most of the time, he was just like you and me. Well, on the same side of the persecuted prosecutors, guys, you have the, you have the Gnostics, and then you have the religious people. And then you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests all sitting ready to, ready to just, let's get this court going, right? On the other side of the courtroom, you have one of the best defense attorneys you could ever possibly have. It's the Apostle John. It's the Apostle John, right? And he's preparing his defense. How so? Well, his defense, he's going to say, okay, you know what? Let's remember, the defense is the titles given to Jesus. Do you remember the titles that were given to Jesus? They called him the Word of God. They called him the Lamb of God. These are titles, the Messiah, the Meshach, the Anointed One, the Son of God, King of Israel, the Savior of the world, the Lord and God. Well, John, what else? What else do you got? He goes, well, I've got, I've got his deity asserted in the seven I am statements. And what else? He says, well, if you want more defense, if we still have to continue in this courtroom, he goes, I'll give you seven miracles and seven witnesses, five of which are not recorded in the other gospels. And he says, well, well what else? He says, well, let me point this out. John's going to point out in his defense the humanity of Jesus. How? Through his hunger. Remember when Jesus was hungry? And, and, I mean, he's going to point that out. He's going to point out his thirst. What did, you guys remember John chapter 4? He, he sent his disciples where? Into Samaria to buy food. What did he do? He sat down. Why? He was tired. He was just like you and I. It said that he was tired, and he's sitting there. And so John's going to go, hey, remember, he, he, he got tired just like you and I. He was up early in the morning praying, and in, in, in the day... The day took a toll on him. He was, he was fully human. And he's going to point out his defense and, 
in the humanity through his pain and his death. He's going to remind us back over in John chapter 20 how, how that was a painful, painful death. And so that's the defense. You've got the prosecutors on one side going, no, no, no. And you've got John going, okay, let's go, let's do this. And so much like a wonderful theologian defense attorney, I love the way John starts off his letter. You go, how so? Picking it up in verse 1, guys. We're, gonna, we're only going to cover a few verses, but check it out. In verse 1 of John chapter 1, he writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Why is that important? Well, he's not worried about genealogy. Why? He's writing to the church. You already believe. So he's going to start off his defense. Okay, here's what I got to do. I'm not going to give you genealogy and where he came from. I'm not going to. He says, let's start off right here. Ready? He starts off a letter with this phrase, in the beginning. So if you're taking notes, the first thing we want to consider is the person of Jesus. Church, why is it important we take notes? Well, it's been said that you only remember about 10% of the sermon once, it's, once, once you get through the week. I mean, 10%, and that's true. And it's really nice to go back and go, oh, yeah, I remember what he said, specifically key phrases or words. And that'll help jog your memory of the whole sermon. And so it's important you take notes. So on your notes, you put the person of Jesus. And you go, okay. And he, used, and he starts off his letter with in the beginning. You go, what does it mean? Well, check this out. It's an expression of timeless eternity. You go, wow, that sounds pretty cool. I don't know what it means. Here it is. You ready? In the original tense, when John starts off and says, in the beginning, here's what he's saying. It means he had no origin. There is no origin and always in existence. So when John starts off, he says, in the beginning, he's saying, no origin was always in existence. Wait, what did he just say? He's saying that God has always been in existence. But he didn't have an origin. And now, let's be honest, okay? That's hard to comprehend. I used to sit up late at night in my room thinking, I don't know if I get this, God. If you... if. If you created the world and everything in it and, and you made me, well, who made God? I mean, I mean, who, listen, like, like, was there, and, and so your mind goes to the place where, was there a beginning with God? Is there, like, and what John just told us is there was no beginning. He has no origin. He was always in existence. Now, let me tell you why this is hard, church. Let me tell you why this is hard is for us to comprehend. Because everything in our culture that we've been taught growing up has a beginning. Everything has a beginning, okay? Life has a beginning, right? You, everything that we know of has a beginning. And the world has a beginning. And, and so when we hear something like this, that God had no beginning, we always go, oh, I don't get it. Why? Because we've been conditioned that everything has a beginning, and everything has an end. And so we know that, right? We know that in the world we live in. Why? Because we're there when we see a little baby being born. And we say, oh, now we know that life has already begun at conception. But we see the manifestation of that life in the little baby. And we just hold her and we're like, wow. To us, what are we saying? This is the beginning. What do we call it, church? A birth date, right? A birthday, And that's, boom, there it is. And then we also know that this life, if we were to follow it, also has a end date. And so in our minds, we're just going, well, everything has a beginning. As a matter of fact, even the world has a beginning. We know that the world just wasn't always, and we've learned that through Scripture. But when John comes up, he says, "Here, you ready? Here's my opening statement. God was always there. We're going, Whoa. So we have to do some work, right? We have to understand what he's saying. For us to understand, we have to kind of compare where we've heard this statement before, right? So automatically, our minds go back to something that has begun, like the world. And so our minds go back to where? 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? Hey, I've heard that phrase before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is it the same phrase, Ben? No, no, no. No, remember that, okay? Now, in English, they sound the same, right? In the beginning. But Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me break this down for you just a little bit. When you look at Genesis 1.1, in the beginning is not meaning that it just was always in existence. It means that this is the first time this took place. Well, what took place? Well, we know that God did something. What did God do? He created out of nothing. You see the word created is bara, and it means to create out of nothing. So in the beginning, this is the first time it happened. This is when time and the world actually started. In the beginning, God. God? Yeah, let's take a moment and let's look at this because this is going to blow your mind because I'm going to show you something very interesting, okay? When we look up the word God in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Elohim. Elohim. And you go, okay. So he's saying, in the beginning, Elohim. That's very creative in power, okay? But if we were to break down this name, it's very, very interesting in light of what John writes. You go, what? If you were to break down Elohim and you take the first two letters, L, L, E-L, it means God. It means one God. So, so the writer of Genesis, whether it was Moses or Adam However, the Holy Spirit worked it out. If he was saying there's only one, there's only one, he would have said in the beginning, El, Bada, the heavens and the earth. He doesn't use that. If you were to take Elo and, and basically that's it, just, just stop right there. E-L-O, if you add a note to that, says two gods. If you were to take Elohim, the actual translations is three or more. Three or more. So when you say, in the beginning, this is where time started, Elohim means the three and one, the Father, Son, and Spirit were already in existence, and they created the heavens and the earth. So you're just like, wow, Elohim. You go, well, Ben, why is this important? Because in light of what John writes, remember in his gospel, he comes and he brings everything to the table and he reminds us that Elohim in Genesis, and then he takes us back even further. He says, even before the beginning of time, even before the beginning of time, right? He says, God. Elohim, Father, Son, and Spirit, had always existed. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? I want you to go back to Genesis 1-1 in your mind. God's about to create the earth, the heavens and the earth, out of nothing. Okay? Now, everybody there? Now, go one day, one day before that. God was in existence. Now go two million years before Genesis 1.1. Elohim was in existence. That's what John is saying. He just always was. He just always was. And so he says, guys, so he says, in the beginning, in the beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I find it interesting that John employs the phrase, the word, how many times? Three times. And it's like, he's almost like saying, okay, Elohim, three in one. I just want to reiterate this in my opening statement. Why? Because he says in the beginning, right? Was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
right? So now we got to do some work. You go, why? Because he's saying, in the beginning was the word. What does that mean, was the word? Well, if you have a pencil handy, you can circle that, and it's the word logos, right? Some people say logos, logos, whatever you want to use. Um, I'm going to go with logos, and, and, and here's what we need to understand. So it says, in the beginning was the logos. And you go, well, what is the logos? Well, last week we said that John was a thinker. He was a great theologian, right? And, and right off the bat, right here, John uses the word logos. And you go, why? Why would he use that word? Well, here's what he's doing, okay? He's writing to the church, and he realizes that in order to reach the church, I need to draw in both Jew and Gentile. If you ever want to be a good communicator, you need to know your audience. You need to know your audience, you need to know where they've come from, their background. John is a great thinker. Now, this is what we think about John. John was so affectionate. He just loved Jesus. Every time we saw him, he's just like hanging on to Jesus, you know? So we don't give credit where credit is due. John is brilliant. And so he starts off and he says, I'm going to employ the word logos because I want to draw in both the Jewish people and the Greek and the Gentile. I want to bring them in and I want to prove to them that Jesus was fully God and fully man. How do I do that with the word that I use? You go, well, what word did he use? Well, it's logos. Well, what does it mean, Ben? Well, it refers to, first of all, the spoken word with an emphasis on its meaning, okay? And you go, well, like what? Okay, well, let's, here's some good note-taking, okay? Number one, the word of God tells us that logos is creative in power. So it's a creative Psalm 33, verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. What does that mean? Well, the word there is logos, right? He says, now by the logos, by the what? The creative in power, God spoke, and the heavens were made. Very, very, very important. Why? A lot of times you'll hear a TV preacher or a radio preacher or they'll, they'll try to put emphasis on our words being spoken to have power. You just speak it and speak it into existence. And I've heard people say all kinds of crazy stuff. Speak to your wallet and your money will double. Crazy stuff like that. And I'm looking at my wallet going, well, you got to have money to double it, right? I mean, how's this going to work? Because they're trying to deceive us. They're saying, they're saying, guys, that our words have this ultimate divine creative power. Nay, 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 nay. It's God who is creative in his power. When God spoke, heavens and earth, boom. Now, I'm not saying that our words don't have power because we have the power to hurt or heal. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you say some, you say some really mean things to your wife or your children, you, those are hurtful words, and they have power because they, they hurt. But you can also use those words to heal and, and encourage. The word here, guys, is creative and power. Everybody got that, creative and power. So the Hebrew mindset at this point, logos, creative and power, was a self-assertion of divine personality. So they're saying, oh, okay, because of our Old Testament, Logos has to be what? A divine personality. To the Greek, the Greeks going, well, I'm not sure about that. Logos to them was that was, it has to be a thought before an action has actually taken place. So John goes, hey, by the way, in the beginning, Logos. And the Jews go, oh, divine personality, creative and power, okay. And the Greeks go, huh, well, somebody had to think that before it was even created, before there was any action. And John's going, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And so he says, if the word logos was a thought in timeless expression, John goes, well, let me conclude that there had to be a thinker. And so he employs the word logos both to Hebrews and to Gentiles to affirm that the word was more than just a spoken word, right? Because when we say word, that's just a spoken word. But to everybody, they're going, oh, 
Okay, so what does it mean? Well, who is it then? If the Hebrews are going, who is this divine, who is this divine personality created in power and who is the thinker behind it is what the Greeks are saying. This is exactly what John says. He says, okay, let me remind you of who he is. You don't have to turn there, just jot this down. Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 13, John writes, now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judged and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head had many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Verse 13, he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. John comes and says, you know who Logos is? It's the Word of God. You go, well, who is that? Well, the Word, guys, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, guys, is, is God's expression in power and thought as well as communication to us. The written word now manifested in human form. You guys tracking with me? You with me? The human, this is exactly, the thinker got, okay, here it is. How, how is this written word now going to be manifested? It's going to be manifested in human form in the person of Jesus. And that's what he's saying. In the beginning, let's just shorten it down. He says, in the beginning was the Logos. And then he says, now, listen, listen. The Logos, the word, was with God. Point number two, we see the person of Jesus, but now we see his coexistence with God. How so? It says the word was with God. Everybody see that in your Bible. The word was with God. Now, I want you to circle that word with because this is where it's going to blow your mind. You go, why? The word with is, in a, is a prop, uh, proposition, and here's what it indicates. It indicates both equality and distinction of identity. You're like, what? It, it indicates that Jesus, okay, because we just learned that he's the word, he is both equal yet distinct in identity with the Father. In that little phrase, yeah, the word was with God. And you go, well, give me, give me, give me like, give me, Give me like a Twitter. How, how, could I, how could I tweet this? You ready? You could say, Jesus was face to face in fellowship with the Father. That's what it means. Pastor, since the beginning of time? No, always in existence. Wow. So Jesus has always been there? Jesus has always been there. What was he doing? He was having wonderful fellowship with the Father. I don't understand it. I know. And I don't think we'll fully grasp it until we get to heaven, until we see him face to face. But this is what John writes. You could imagine that. Could you imagine, you know, the prosecutors? They're sitting here. They're getting steamed. Why? Because John just blew them out of the water. He's going, wait a minute. Listen, this logos, Jesus But he was, he was just a man. No, 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 you don't understand. He was equal with God, but he was also distinct in identity. Wow. Let me give you a nugget of truth, guys, that we can take home this week. I think through Jesus, guys, we can have the same type of fellowship, don't you? If Jesus was up there enjoying just wonderful fellowship with God, he's made a way so that you and I can too. And what the enemy wants to do is he wants to distract you from having fellowship with the God that created you. He will get you busy that you won't spend any time with God. And yet we have the wonderful privilege of face-to-face fellowship with God. Well, what do I do with God? Have you just talked with him? Oh, oh, I don't know. Do I, do I come in and just and bow and kneel? And no, We're not doing ritual stuff. We're just having fellowship. How do you have fellowship with people? You just have a great time. And I wonder, church, when was the, when was the last time 
that you walked away and you walked with Jesus and you just had this great conversation. You just told him about your day. Well, does it have to be spiritual? Is it like, God, how Father, what? Just tell him. You know, Lord, I really had a bummer day today, man. Everybody at my work was crazy and they were just all out of control and I know I shouldn't be whining and but just walk, and, and as you walk through, you just fellowship. You just fellowship with him. And I'll guarantee you, if you fellowship face-to-face with God, it will eventually turn into praise. It'll be amazing. Isn't that what you see with Paul? Paul's like, Paul starts off and, 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 and I mean, and, and, and he's got to stop and, and he just worships. Why? Because he understands. He's just like, I'm face-to-face with God. I'll tell you another thing it does. When you fellowship with God, it turns your problems and makes your problems seem so small, doesn't it? God, my car has bumperitis and it's falling apart and all this. And you know, you start going all this stuff, right? And then you realize how big God is and you're like, you know what? What am I whining about? What am I crying about? That's, Lord, you're great. You're awesome. That can be fixed. Wow. You know what I found, church, in my life that when I glorify God, is really when I have the most joy. Just, just, it's just joy. It's joy. Well, what's changed in your life? I got the same old bills. I got the same. We got this. I got the same. But, but what's changed? I. <laughs> one day, all this is not going to matter, is it? It's going to be all right. But the more I, the more I glorify God, the more I just have joy. So the word we've learned is who? Jesus. We know that he was with God. What does that mean? Equal yet distinct with God. And then third point in our study this morning is Jesus' existence with God. Look at verse, look at the end of the verse. It says, and the word was God. Okay? You ever hear that statement, mic drop, right? Where you just, you just give a statement and then you just got to walk away, boom, right? This is exactly what John does. Why? Because here, guys, he clearly states the deity. John says, our, def- our defense attorney stands up. He drives home the point. He says, listen, listen up. Jesus is God. Boom. And he just drops the mic. Why? That's, what else can you say? He's saying that, that, that Jesus is both the God and both man, period. Now, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Why? Because a lot of people have come in and tried to change this statement. See, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, listen, the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, tell us when the end of the world's going to be. And what is the first thing he say? Don't be deceived. That's, that's what he wants to say. Don't be deceived, right? Because everybody's trying to deceive us. So we need to know the word of God. You go, well, how can we be deceived, pastor? There's a group of people that will come to your house on Saturday morning, knock on the door, and they're the sweetest people. And they'll say, hi, we want to talk to you about what's going on in the world. And so they'll start, some of you will invite him in and you'll get to talking. And when you realize that your versions of the Bible don't match up, you go, why? Because they'll take this verse, John chapter one, verse one, and they'll add just a little letter. You go, what? In this last part of the verse, they'll go, well, in the beginning, we believe you, we're with you. And you'll say, well, in the beginning was the word. And they'll say, yes, it is. And you'll say, and the word was with God. And they'll say, yes, he was. And then you'll say, and the word was God. And they'll say, oh, no, no, the word was a God. And they'll take one little letter and they'll insert it there that changes the whole meaning. And what the enemy tries to do, church, listen to me, is he'll take 98% truth, throw in a little bit of a lie, and hope that you swallow all of it. Well, what happens with a little a? It changes all of Jesus' Jesus' deity, doesn't it? He's no longer fully God. He's now a created being. And that's what they want to say. They want to say, well, God is God. He's Jehovah. And now he created Jesus, who's a smaller God. And that's who we want to talk to you about. And so when you say, I believe in Jesus, listen to me, church. I'm giving you, I'm giving you truth here. You say, I believe in Jesus. They say, I do too. And you go, oh, we're in great fellowship. No, no, no. What Jesus do you believe in? And then when you say, well, I believe, I believe Jesus was God, Elohim. 
That's when the conflict comes. No, 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 no. He was a created. He was created like Michael and and Gabriel. He's one of the archangels. And they're trying to deceive us. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but listen, if 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 I invite you to my house and I say, "Listen, man, come over. We're having a fiesta. We're having a feast." My wife, you know, she went all out. She went all out. We've got green chili chicken enchiladas. We've got red. We've got tacos. We've got beans. We've got, every, we got everything you can imagine. Come and have some food. You guys would be there. You make salsa? Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, before you sit down, she poured a little strychnine into some of the, I don't know where it is, um, but it's in there. But you're okay. You're okay. Just a little bit. How many of you would still eat at my house? Yeah, nobody, right? You're like, uh. That's what poison does. You're getting a good full, you know, feast. It's just poison in there. You don't know where it's at. And here's exactly what they do. And they say, no, no, no. See, John stands up and says, no. Jesus was God. Jesus was God. And then, and it's like if we didn't get it, because he's a great defense attorney, he reminds us again, look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Do you remember that? He was in the beginning. What does that mean? Well, if you were going to say, well, he was created at this point, we go, no, 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 because he was in the beginning. What does that mean? He was always there in existence. You guys with me? He was always there, no origin, and, right? He was distinct and yet equal in identity. How do you, what kind of, I mean, what, where, where do you come back from this? I mean, you're just like, ah, and so the question that, that now, so now the prosecutors now will change their, their, their view, right? They're going to go, okay, well, oh, he's got us on verse 1. Ugh. But here's where we can get him. That did Jesus, did, did this word, this logos actually come to earth? Was he actually a man? And so jump with me to verse 14 real quick, right? Verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. What did he just say? He said, Jesus, he said, well, now he, what? He became flesh. And he, you know what the word is there, guys, in verse 14? The word is tabernacled. And all the Jewish folks would go, we know that word. That's Old Testament. That's where he, that's where God would, he would come and, 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 you know, and they would just go, they would go nuts because of the tabernacle that they had to move and eventually it was the temple. John just said, by the way, he came and he just dwelt, he tabernacled among us. Now, let me just throw this little side note for you. That's exactly what Jesus does when you accept him into your heart. He comes in and he tabernacles inside you. He lives inside you. He's, he's going to dwell there. And so John says, now the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's what's happening, guys. Here's what's happening, okay? The, the prosecutors are going like this. Well, I don't think so. Docetism, Serenthianism, these false prophets, these Gnostics are going, no, 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 no. What do you mean he, he became flesh? And John says, well, let me remind you of what I wrote a uh, little bit later. He says, First um, John chapter 1, 1 through 3, he says, that which from the beginning, that's Jesus, right? Y'all got that? He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, we've gazed upon him. He said, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father is now manifested to us and that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know what he just said? Uh, Excuse me? Uh, No, we touched him. We handled him. He was flesh. Uh, I mean, I saw him and I even gazed at him. I wanted to make sure. That's what the word looks at. It means he gazed with intently. And he says, and we touched him. And I get this wonderful picture that whenever the disciples walked, John was always right by Jesus holding onto his arm or something. Don't you? Just, he just, John was just affectionate. I think John was always hugging Jesus. 
And I think Jesus would be going, really, John? I just saw you two minutes ago. Calm down, you know? But I think John was just like, ah. I, I, I picture John. You ever have your kids when you come home, they used to grab your feet, right, and sit on your foot and, and, and hold on to you like that, right? And you're trying to walk like this. Do you remember that when your kids used to do that? Uh, when, when Jesus said, listen, I'm about to go to the Father, John's like, no, and he's probably hanging on to Jesus' feet, right? Don't leave, and Jesus is like, John, really? You're embarrassing yourself in front of the other disciples. James, get him off. But I say that because he's saying to us that he was real, that, he was, that it wasn't a spirit. It wasn't, he was, he was real. He was real. Now, let's close with this, okay? Let's close with this. We have a good understanding that the word logos is Jesus. Can I get an amen? Now, let's go back and let's insert the name of Jesus where the word was, okay? Verse one, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God and Jesus now became flesh and lived among us. And so my question to you, based on that statement, is how does this impact your life? If Jesus Christ if Jesus has always been in existence, has no origin, and Jesus throughout eternity had face-to-face fellowship with the Father, And Jesus was fully God, and he came, and he lived on earth. How does that impact you? You see, the Bible says that nobody gets to the Father through Jesus. For me, this is how it impacts me. According to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14... It says this, the writer of Hebrews says, because God's children are human beings, that's us, made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. That's how it impacts me. Why? I know that Jesus had to come in the flesh so that I could be saved. But much more than that, church, can I offer you some encouragement? Before I give you some encouragement, let's answer the question that King Solomon and and Joan Osborne asked. Yes, God came to live among us. God became man to save us. That's the answer to your question. Yes, can God, Solomon, yes. What if God was one of us? He was one of us. And that's what Hebrews just said. He's one of us. He had to become one of us so that he could. Here's your encouragement. You ready? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, eternity is taken care of. When you die, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to be with him. That's done. But God loves you so much that he's going to save you, that he's going to walk with you through the hurts and the pains and even the good times in life. And when you're lonely, because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he understands exactly what loneliness is. And when you cry out to him, he can relate. You can say, you can tell your husband, I'm lonely and your husband doesn't know what to do. You can tell your family, I'm, I'm empty and, and your family doesn't know what to do. But Jesus does because he knows what it feels like because he was fully human. When you, when you have anxiety and you're worried and you're stressed, guys, you can cry out to Jesus because he knows exactly what you're feeling. How does he know? Because he's gone through that. He's experienced every emotion that we experience, and that's the kind of God I want to serve. Pastor, does, does Jesus know what it's like when somebody close to you dies? Absolutely, right? Do you remember what happened when his friend Lazarus died? It said that he just wept. 
Why did he weep? Here's why. Listen, Jesus knew that he was going to go and raise him again from the dead, so there was that hope. He wept because he understood your hurt. He understood what you're going through, and he knew how heartbreaking and hard death is. And Jesus wept. And, and many times when we lose, we lose loved ones here on earth, guys, he weeps with us because he knows how much we hurt. Does Jesus know what it's like to be betrayed by your best friend? Wasn't it, wasn't it Judas who came and betrayed him with a kiss? Jesus loved Judas, and that hurt. And he looks at him, he says, friend, you're betraying me with a kiss? Here's the point. God does understand your life exactly where it is. He understands your loneliness, your emptiness. He understands your guilt and your shame. And so the cross is so much more than, if I pray this prayer, I go to heaven. The cross is, he's going to walk with me every single day. And he understands me. That's the God I want to encounter. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word today and the truth in your word. And we thank you, God. We love you so much. And we know that, God, you're in control of all things. And so we thank you. And we want to be, we want to be fully devoted followers to you. And Father, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I would just ask, is there anyone here who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus, but you want to today? Is there anyone here that would say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure if I'm saved. I'm not sure that if today, if Jesus came back or I were to die, I'd go to heaven, but I want to. I want to join the family of God, and and I don't know what to do. If you're here today and you... And you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and you're saying, Pastor, I I just want to be saved. Can I pray for you? Oh, what do I have to do? All you have to do is lift up your hand. Everybody's eyes are closed and their heads are bowed. All I have to do is say, Pastor, will you just pray for me? Will you just pray? I want to give my life to Jesus today. Would you just do that right now? If that's you, and again, I just want to give you an invitation real quick and you just say, Pastor, that's me. Will you just lift up your hand if you say, I want to follow Jesus all of my days. I'm going to give my life to him. If you have never done that and you want to do that, I want to pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you and we worship you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.